Today we will begin Megillat Kohelet. Before we begin uh, with the text of Kohelet, today's class will be uh, an overall introduction to the Sefer. Before I begin the introduction, I want to say I'm deeply indebted uh, to Ravioni Grossman, uh, whose Shirodim uh, on Kohelet I have listened to, and I will be borrowing uh, a lot of material that uh, that he introduced, that he used, and many of the ideas uh, that he used in these shiurim. The main topics I'd like to address today are as follows. The first is uh, a quick uh, introduction to Sifrut HaChokhmah, uh, or Wisdom Literature, of which Kohelet is a part of. The three books in Tanakh that uh, most obviously represent Sifrut HaChokhmah are uh, Iyov, and Mishle, and Kohelet. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Sifrut HaChokhmah and uh, Kohelet's place within uh, the context of Sifrut HaChokhmah. Uh, that's first of all. The The next topic I'd like to discuss are the difficulties with Kohelet. Kohelet is perhaps the most difficult, uh, one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult Sefer in Tanakh, uh, to understand, and uh, there are two major reasons for that. The first is the uh, the substance of the book, the themes uh, presented in Kohelet, and the other is the the enormous number of contradictions. It's it's almost. And we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit. The contradictions are uh, are intrinsic to the actual book. They're there on purpose, and uh, we'll talk about why they're there on purpose. But the two major problems are uh, the the uh, thematics of the book and the contradictions in the book, and we'll discuss those in this introduction. And the final thing that I'd like to talk about is the authorship of the book, uh, which we traditionally ascribe to uh, Shilomo HaMelech, and uh, which I will explain at the at, towards the end of this introduction. So first, a, a brief introduction into Sifrut HaChokhmah, uh, what, what is called in English uh, wisdom literature. Uh, the questions raised in Sifrut HaChokhmah are questions are, are mostly uh, what you could call universalist questions, questions of moral behavior, the meaning of human life, uh, the right conduct of life. These are questions that perhaps in the rest of Tanakh we see addressed uh, in an implicit way, through the uh, through the narrative, but in Sifrut HaChokhmah, these questions are raised explicitly. They are discussed explicitly. I guess the closest thing historically uh, to what we see in the Sifrut HaChokhmah and Tanakh, the closest thing we might think of historically is Greek philosophy, where these questions of what constitutes the good life. Uh, reflections on the human condition, inquiries into values, these are all asked in Greek philosophy. Sifrut is a little bit more practical, more tangible. Uh, it's not as systematic as Greek philosophy is, uh, but it addresses similar types of questions. Now, the classic representatives of uh, wisdom literature in Tanakh are uh, three Sefarim, Iov, uh, Mishle, and Kohelet. Uh, and each of those represents... If I were to divide uh, wisdom literature into sort of two branches, the first being a practical branch, how should a person live every day? Michelet is sort of the uh, cardinal representative of that branch of uh, wisdom literature. If the second branch of wisdom literature is more abstract uh, theological questions about the nature of 
the universe, the nature of good and evil. Iov is kind of the cardinal representative of that branch of Sifrut HaChokhmah, of, of wisdom literature. And what we'll see is that Kohelet is actually a combination of both. It will both instruct, be, be didactic, uh, in terms of uh, instructing a person how what he should do in order to live a good life, and it's also more theoretical, and we'll ask uh, deep theological questions, which we'll get to uh, in a second in this uh, in this introduction. Sifrut HaChokhmah, wisdom literature, is also not limited to these three books. We see it in other places in Tanakh, particularly in various Mizmorim of Tehillim. Most significantly and famously, uh, Mizmor Aleph of Tehillim. It could be could be uh, qualified as as wisdom literature, and we see. Uh, some of the themes of wisdom literature and other sefarim we discussed in Megillat Echa and Perek Gimel, uh, how the Mekonen uh, had this long discourse on justice and uh, and evil and whether his prayers would be answered by God, whether God uh, is indeed uh, going to bring justice to his enemies. And so these are questions that are addressed by uh, by Sifrut HaChokhmah, and they're not exclusive to the uh, three books that we discussed, to Iov, Mishle, and Kohelet, but Iov, Mishle, and Kohelet are almost exclusively uh, Sifrut HaChokhmah, exclusively wisdom literature. Now, the foundation of Sifrut HaChokhmah is the Pitgam, or the proverb. And if I read the definition of what a proverb is, uh, I, I find the following, if I look it up, a short, pithy saying in general use, stating a general truth or piece of advice, which is exactly what wisdom literature builds on. And so, uh, historically, there may have been uh, popular sayings that the masses used, popular sayings we would we would use, for example, like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or uh, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Right, these would be modern uh, modern uh, uh, idioms we use or proverbs we use that express a certain truth or a way to act. And what wisdom literature did was build on top of these sayings and, in fact, turn them into a much more sophisticated uh, sifrut literature, uh, not just uh, what the masses are saying, but a uh, a deep reflection on the truth, on the deeper truth of what's involved in the uh, popular proverb uh, or an expansion of, uh, of that truth. And the way these things were done historically was that across the ancient Near East, and this is true in Yisrael, and it was true across the Levant and in, uh, in Egypt as well, they would have wisdom, wisdom the study of wisdom was uh, a formal serious activity that was done in academic circles, and people would get together, and it was a skill that a person uh, person would uh, would learn and use and write, similar to how uh, the skill of learning Torah would be developed later on in yeshivot uh, in uh, in Bavel. And so there were academies that devoted themselves exclusively to studying chokhmah and to putting that down, uh, either to putting that down on paper or to transmitting it to the next generation uh, as uh, eternal truths uh, and in the form of literature. And just finally, quickly, a comment on uh, the literature part of all of this is that the just like literature has uh, its own 
characteristics, and these these could be uh, parallelism or uh, metaphors or onomatopoeia, whatever it is, whatever the the sort of literary technique that you could think of is, the chokhmah that was written down and passed on was done so with manifesting literary techniques. And this will become quite important uh, as we go through Kohelet. And it's it's even important, it's important in the other books, other books of Sifuta Chokhmah as well. Let me start the discussion of the problems with Sefer Kohelet with a uh, famous Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. The Gemara says as follows, Amar Yehuda bered Rabbi Shemuel bar Shilat Meshemed Erav, Bikshu hachamim lignoz sefer koheret mipene shedevarav sotrin ze etze. Hachamim, or certain hachamim, uh, got together and decided they would like to take koheret out of the canon of Tanakh uh, because koheret uh, manifested in its words many contradictions. Devarav, his words, sotrin ze contradict each other. Now, the original entrance of Kohelet into the canon of Tanakh was itself a discussion of Mahloket in Masechet Yadaim between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. It ended up in Tanakh, but at some point, at a later date, people, certain Hachamim, wanted to take it out of Tanakh, and the reason stated in the Gemara in Shabbat is that Kohelet contradicted himself. The Gemara there gives a few examples of the contradictions in Kohelet. I won't go through, through them here. But the Gemara over there ends and says, Why did they not take it out of the canon? Why did they not uh, hide it forever, so to speak? Because Kohelet starts with Divrei Torah and ends with Divrei Torah, as it says at the end, so it ends with Torah, which is a very strange answer to the question. The question of the, the, the to the to the problem Hachamim had. The problem was that Kohelet contradicts himself, and the solution, so to speak, to the problem was that it starts with Torah and ends with Torah, which is not really a solution to the contradictions. Uh, there is another uh, place this time in the Midrash where the, the Midrash tells us that Hachamim Bikshu Lignoz Sefer Kohelet. It's in Vaikra Rabbah, and it is also in Kohelet Rabbah. And the Midrash goes like this, Amar Bibin Yamin Ben Levi, Bikshu Hachamim Lignoz Sefer Kohelet. Hachamim wanted to take Sefer Kohelet out of the canon, to hide it forever. Shematzubo Devarim, and the reason here is a little bit different than the reason in Masichat Shabbat. They found uh, words inside Kohelet. They found uh, concepts in Kohelet, Shehem notin netzad minut, that uh, seem to incline towards minut, towards heterodoxy, towards heresy. And the Midrash over here gives an example. The Pasuk says in Kohelet, What is the advantage, what is the purpose of man working so hard uh, under the sun? Is it possible that Kohelet meant that even the uh, effort that a person puts into learning Torah is futile? Kohelet doesn't say that all effort is futile, just his effort. A person's personal effort is futile. But 
but the effort that a person puts into something that is not physically his, i.e. the Torah, that effort is not futile. That's how the Gemara answers uh, the the issue of the Geniza of Sefer Kohelet in the Midrash. And the Midrash over there brings a few other examples of the seemingly heretical words of Kohelet and explains them away in a similar fashion. Now, what's apparent in uh, these two different uh, uh, stories brought down by the Gemara and the Midrash is that the core problem the Hachamim had with Kohelet is not necessarily the contradictions, it's the seemingly heretical views that Kohelet, uh, Kohelet discussed this. The real problem with the contradictions is that it may, the, the, the contradictions in Kohelet may lead a person towards the heretical views. And what are these heretical views? Uh, and this really cuts to the core theme of Kohelet throughout the entire Sefer, which is that in Kohelet's search for the meaning of life, and he searches for it in a few different places, he tries to find it in Chokhmah, in wisdom, he tries to find it in uh, in uh, physical pleasure, he tries to find it in Amal, in hard work and effort, and in the end of the day, uh, what Kohelet keeps on coming back to is that he can't find a real purpose for life. That's the core, seemingly heretical view of Kohelet. And I say seemingly heretical because obviously that can't be the end of the story because there's no, there's no reason why uh, Kohelet would be in Tanakh if that were the end of the story and that were Kohelet's actual maskana. But uh, on a surface reading of Kohelet, the core theme is that no matter where Kohelet looks, he does not find an answer to his core question of what is this all about? What is uh, the meaning of life? And can it, is there anything that can impart meaning to a person's life? That is the core theme of the Sefer, and that is certainly uh, uh, explicitly in the Midrash and Kohelet about what Hachamim were worried about when they wanted to be Gonez Sefer Kohelet. And based on the response of the Gemara in Shabbat, that Tehilatot Divrei Torah, it's probably what they were worried about with the contradictions as well. That all the contradictions would lead a person to simply throw up his hands and say, you know what, there really is no purpose to life. There really is uh, uh, no higher calling, so to speak, uh, which a person should hearken to, and therefore uh, a person uh, just quits. And of course, that is a, a, a wholly antithetical attitude uh, to what we see everywhere else in Tanakh and to what a uh, religious person uh, should go through life with. Either way, what is clear is that at the end of the day, Hachamim were satisfied that upon a close reading of the book, a person would not come to that conclusion at all, uh, and we'll see as we read the book what conclusion a person should come to. When it comes to the uh, contradictions in uh, in Sefer Kohelet. Uh, I'd like to uh, just discuss a few of the different historical approaches uh, to the contradictions, and then uh, in that process, talk about which ones uh, we will be using in uh, as we go through the Sefer ourselves. The first approach is uh, is kind of the midrashic approach, which we saw a little bit earlier. 
And the best way to sort of describe this approach is that this is the approach of ukimta. And anybody who's familiar with learning Talmud uh, will know that this approach is basically whenever there's a contradiction, the response is that uh, one, one side of the contradiction is referring to one case and the other side of the contradiction is referring to another case. So in the previous example we brought from uh, Kohelet Rabbah, where the pasuk was uh, what's the purpose of, of the effort, the, uh, the toil uh, that a person toils under the sun. The Midrashic, and in other places in Kohelet, it actually praises effort, it praises toil. And the Midrashic Ukimta would be that no, when the Midra, when Kohelet is praising toil, that is toil me'al Hashemish, that is toil related to things uh, of spiritual uh, greatness, related to Olam Haba. And when a man toils mitahat Hashemish for anything physical related to this world, that's when Kohelet. Uh, that's when Kohelet criticizes effort and says that it's futile. That is, by and large, not the approach uh, that we will take as we go through Kohelet. It's not really the, uh, the, appro- the Peshat approach to going through the text. Another historical approach has been, and, and this is something uh, that's been done uh, across the board by modern academics. It's been done by the Ibn Ezra. Uh, it's been done in a way that I'll explain in a second by uh, uh, Rav bin Nun and Yaakov Medan uh, in, uh, in Mikhlelet Herzog. And that is that the different statements, the different points of view in Kohelet are actually uh, different points of view either of different people or they are different points of view uh, within one person. The Ibn Ezra's approach, for example, is to divide the different points of view into the different parts of the nefesh, the different parts of the soul uh, that were uh, commonly, that, that pe- medieval philosophers commonly divided the soul into, and that each point of view in Kohelet is a different part of uh, the nefesh. Uh, Rav Yol Binun and Yaakov Medan divide uh, the points of view of Kohelet into four different points of view. They are all the points of view of one person, but different parts of a person's psychology. So the uh, first point of view, for example, is the point of view of the wise man, who says that all of life's questions and problems can be solved with wisdom. And the second point of view is the point of view of the toiler, the amel, the person who puts in a lot of effort, maybe the, the workaholic, so to speak, who thinks that all of life's problems can uh, be solved or, or answered through hard work. And the third point of view is the point of view of the nehentan, the person who takes delight in life's physical pleasures, the hedonist, so to speak. And these are these can all be seen as different parts of a person's own psychology. And the fourth point of view is sort of the the anchor point of view, uh, the one that comes to almost oppose the other three points of view, and that's the point of view of the uh, uh, of the Yere Elohim. And his point of view, of course, is that you can't find the uh, answers to to life's questions either with wis- neither with wisdom, nor with physical pleasure, uh, nor with effort. And in fact, life's problems can uh, only be addressed with Yirat Hashem. And uh, and whatever comes along, whatever actions and uh, and learnings would come along with uh, Yirat Hashem. The sort of lazy corollary uh, to the to the to this second uh, category of approaches that that it's different voices in Kohelet. The lazy corollary to that is 
certain modern uh, modern academic approaches basically say that Kohelet was written by many different people. And the reason why uh, that doesn't serve us well is not so much the religious problems with that approach, although of course they're there. The problem with that approach that different people wrote Kohelet is that it's kind of lazy, is that it takes the entire uh, book, which is which can be and should be, as we will be doing, should be learned as uh, one a uh, piece of literature written by one person uh, and with all the analytical repercussions that uh, that one holistic piece of literature has uh, that's that would be the the uh, more difficult and honest way to approach the book and just saying oh Kohelet was written by a few different people and it's not even worth pursuing understanding the contradictions is kind of a lazy way to answer uh, the deeper questions of, of uh, that the book poses. For the most part, uh, this second approach of the different voices is not one uh, that we will be taking uh, in our own study of Kohelet, although I may mention it a few times over the course of the book. Another approach uh, to the contradictions is, uh, and this one we will use uh, extensively throughout the Sefer, is what I call uh, the quotations approach. And that is, we spoke a little bit earlier that in the culture of uh, wisdom literature throughout the ancient Near East, uh, the sort of foundational element of wisdom literature are uh, would have been the popular proverbs, and that what wisdom literature did was build upon uh, these uh, popular proverbs and turn them into more sophisticated literature. And in this approach to the contradictions, what Kohelet is actually doing is uh, quoting a popular proverb, or he's quoting a proverb that another piece of uh, wisdom literature uh, would have uh, would have stressed, and then he's rejecting uh, that popular proverb. And so it's not really a contradiction. What he's doing is quoting a popular point of view, quoting a, a another. A point of view from other pieces of wisdom literature and then rejecting that. And so that's not really a contradiction. What he's doing is stating the argument, so to speak, of someone else or the opposition and then uh, disagreeing with that particular argument. So, for example, uh, if I said something, and this is an, perhaps a, a, a uh, a, uh, an infantile example, but if I said, when life gives you lemons, uh, you make lemonade, but really lemonade is overrated, you would not say that I'm contradicting myself, you'd say that I'm quoting a popular aphorism and uh, that I'm rejecting it because it's ridiculous. Uh, or it's a little bit too simplistic. And so frequently what Kohelet is actually doing is uh, quoting others uh, and responding to them. That's sort of approach number three, uh, and we will use uh, we will use that approach throughout the throughout the sefer. The final approach, and this is one that we will also be taking throughout the sefer, is that the entire question of the contradictions of Kohelet is coming about Kohelet the wrong way. Is that what we're used to in uh, the West is this sort of uh, 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 guided, uh, cogent essay where the person advancing a point of view is very clear about the point of view that he wants advanced. He's very clear about when he's bringing up opposing arguments and how he rejects those arguments. And he will also bring his own supporting arguments as to whatever his point of view is. And then he will conclude his essay. And that's sort of the model uh, uh, that we have uh, popularized originally by, uh, by Greek philosophical literature. And 
That's just not what Kohelet is. Kohelet is not a Western piece of literature. It's uh, it's a piece of literature uh, from the ancient Near East, and it's influenced by the cultural norms of literature in the ancient Near East. And what Kohelet is coming to do is not to advance a certain point of view as to what he thinks the purpose of life is, but in fact what he's coming to do is uh, consider other wisdom academies and uh, point of points of view as to the purpose of life. And most of the time, he will reject those points of view. But in general, it's a freewheeling uh, uh, piece of literature in which he considers many different opinions. Most of the time, he rejects them. Sometimes he accepts them. Uh, but this is not something with some sort of overarching goal that he's, uh, that he's uh, trying to achieve. And if there is an overarching goal, it's actually... Uh, implicit in the text, and we will see that uh, as we go through the text. And so uh, both approaches number three of the quotations and approaches number four of the sort of uh, uh, freewheeling Eastern type of literature uh, that Kohelet is, these are the approaches that we will take throughout uh, the reading of Kohelet. The last thing that I wanted to discuss in the introduction is uh, Shilovo's authorship of the book of Kohelet. Traditionally, uh, we ascribe uh, uh, the writing of Kohelet, the, the authorship of Kohelet, to Shelomo. And in fact, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Melachim, Perek uh, He, starting with Pasuk Tet, the Navi over there goes to great lengths to uh, describe the wisdom of Shelomo. And in fact, if you think about the story of Malkat Sheva, here you have a uh, foreign dignitary or a foreign queen that's coming to Shilomo. And what is the the thing that she does is she asks him a a, uh, a riddle. And so it's totally understandable uh, the 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 relationship that Shilomo has to chokhmah uh, and and uh, to wisdom. That's totally understandable. We also have. In the book itself, it kind of in in Kohelet itself, it kind of makes sense. And the first thing we would think is to attribute the book to Shelomo. He says, "Divrei Kohelet ben David." He is the son. Uh, Kohelet himself says that he is the son of David. When the sort of autobiographical sketch of Kohelet starts in Perik Alpha Sukyud Bet, which we'll start tomorrow, he says, "Ani Kohelet haiti melech Israel." I was the king of. All the Israelites, Birushalayim, in Yerushalayim. Now, there's only one person that uh, we can think of that was also the king over all the Israelites in Yerushalayim and was also the son of David. And of course, that person is Shilomo. The problem with this is that the actual words of Kohelet, the philology of Kohelet, and the literary structure of Kohelet seems to indicate that this was written much later. Uh, perhaps in the Second Temple period, there are words in there, for example, like Pardes that are Persian, and which would, so, so these sorts of things would indicate uh, a later writing than uh, than Shilomo. And the sort of solution that I wanted to suggest is Ravio Binun's uh, solution to the problem. What he says is that Chokma Torah Chokma in Israel was not dissimilar from Torah Shebe'alpe in Israel. And just like Torah Shebe'alpe was, for the most part, for hundreds of years, Be'alpe, and it was passed down orally from generation to generation, Torah HaChokmah, the wisdom of the academies, was also, for the most part, passed down orally from generation to generation. And so, while the substance of the book of Kohelet, and this would also apply to uh, Mishle and Shira Shirim, the substance of 
Kohelet was in fact uh, said and spoken and discussed by Shlomo HaMelech, was passed down from generation to generation and was only written much later. And the language and the type of literary structure that it was given by the person who ended up writing it uh, was the language and literary structure of the time that that person lived in. But the actual substance of the uh, the Sefer is entirely from Shlomo HaMelech. Uh, we will stop here uh, for today. That, that kind of ends our introduction. And we will start the text of Kohelet in the next class.